Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. September 19th, 1995. After nearly three months of incessant and sweaty hand-wringing, the editors at the New York Times and Washington Post newspapers readied their printing presses for an atypical and darkly historic publication. For in the wake of long-winded consultations with the FBI, counterterrorism experts, and even prominent linguistics departments, the choice was made to allow a sprawling 35,000-word document to be published publicly, a document that some government officials thought would be appeasing terrorism, or at a bare minimum, inspiring budding extremists to spread their proverbial wings. After all, the World Trade Center bombing, the Ruby Ridge standoff, the Waco siege, and the Oklahoma City bombing were still fresh in the public consciousness. But despite the potential for copycat attacks, officials made the call to publish the unedited book in its entirety in the hopes that its public dissemination would lead to the terrorists' arrest. It was an audacious ploy, and one that the hardliners could credibly assert was tantamount to appeasing terrorism. The document in question was entitled Industrial Society and Its Future by FC, or Freedom Club. This was a pseudonym used by Ted Kaczynski amidst his Unabomber crimes, a manifesto that derided a rapidly evolving technological reality and the destabilizing effects this would have on human freedom, the biosphere, and the existence of humanity itself. And as newspaper subscribers from coast to coast opened their copies of the news that morning, they internally recited the now infamous opening line of Kaczynski's manifesto. Quote, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Smoke-Filled Rooms a Darkcast Network show where we analyze the curious nexus between true crime, political degeneracy, and historical analysis. And today is an exceptional episode for you, dear listener. We will be welcoming our very first guest to the program in a wide-ranging discussion on the philosophy and historical ramifications of Ted Kaczynski's now infamous work, Industrial Society and Its Future. So just as a reminder to anyone, this is episode two of my Unabomber Deep Dive. If you have not listened to episode 1, which is essentially an audiobook version of the Unabomber's Manifesto, then you will not possess a solid frame of reference for this show. And I say this specifically because my honored guest and I make little reference in explaining the book for an ignorant listener. We are talking about it as if you have listened to the material or possibly read it on your own. Recall that I have linked to Kaczynski's book both here and in the previous episode's show notes, so don't walk into this discussion thinking we're going to spoon-feed you the work you haven't done. Conversely, if you do happen to have a decent grip on political and philosophical terminology and concepts, 
related to, say, anarchism, government, power, social balances, force, etc., then you'll probably make it through just fine. And before I introduce my honored guest, I want to alert you to a few things. Firstly, I am formally requesting that everyone head over to the website and send me a message with your email address so I can start to better understand my audience and what you want. Once again, the site is smokefilledrooms.net and it can also be found in the show notes. And all you have to do is send me a quick hey man or whatever you want me to know about the show. I've made it very simple in that once the webpage loads, just hit the contact us button at the top of the page and it'll direct you right to the form. And joining the mailing list will be a critical component in securing a free piece of swag that I'm currently preparing in the short term. The next item is alerting everyone to a liberty-centric book that I'm loving right now called The Ethics of Vaccine Passports, A Poor Bargain by Aviel Oppenheim. And I am notifying you about this amazing piece of philosophical and legal literature because, later this month, Aviel will actually be joining me on the show for a discussion about the various crimes of the COVID regime. His book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo in all formats, including hardcover, paperback, and Kindle. Check the show notes for links to this prescient piece of literature. And finally, I'm shouting out the immensely talented Raven of the Rogue Darkness podcast. She greatly improved the artwork of this show, as you've probably already noticed. She helped revamp the image because, as we all know, presentation is a critical element of putting content out into the world these days. Raven fashioned me a brilliant set of images for the podcast, and I give her many thanks for doing so. Please show her some love by heading over to her YouTube channel called Rogue Darkness and subscribing. She really puts together amazing productions, so I promise it's well worth your time. Here is a sample of what to expect. Witchcraft. The occult. Extremist beliefs. Murder. Tune in to Rogue Darkness each Friday and join host Raven as I uncover horrific crimes committed under the misconceptions and misunderstandings of witchcraft and other belief systems. I'll cover a wide range of crimes involving ritualistic killings and extremist beliefs to cult persuasion and supposed possession. Anything and everything that borders the line of horrifying. There's always three sides to a story. Side A, side B, and then the truth. Let's uncover the truth together and explore the darkness of mankind, one crime at a time. Available wherever you get your podcast fix, simply by searching Rogue Darkness. And now on to the featured event. My much alluded to guest for this episode is Alex von Sternberg of the History Impossible podcast. And this isn't just me kissing ass here when I say that Alex's show is hands down one of the best historical pods on the market. And it's no exaggeration that I rank him amongst such legends as Dan Carlin's Hardcore History and Daryl Cooper's Martyr Maid. Yeah, he's that good. Alex has been doing the show for over four years now, and in the process has built himself a significant following. I believe he's pegged in the top 1.5% of podcasts worldwide, if I remember correctly. So he's no slouch, to be sure. What I love most about his podcast is that he digs into topics that most people would be terrified to touch. Certainly not things that you'll see on some cheese-ass history network show, or learn about in a university classroom. Alex definitely has a knack for finding deeply fascinating topics that are rarely rivaled or even talked about. On this front, one of his most notable works includes an ongoing series called The Muslim Nazis, 
This focuses on the ideological connections between the German fascists and the Islamic extremists, plus the historical bonds the Reich forged with Muslim nations of the Middle East. Another great series he created was called The Great Hollywood Cover-Up. This deals with the first batch of celebrities from really old-school Hollywood in the late 1920s. I love his description, so I'm just going to read it out. Quote, Scandal after scandal was rocking the new kid in town, the motion picture business, Tinseltown, Hollywood. Overdoses on mercury bichloride, cocaine-addicted starlets, prostitution and drug rings, suicides, and an alleged raucous orgy ending in the rape and murder of an actress by one of its top stars. End quote. So be sure to scroll through his catalog and download a bunch of his binge-worthy shows. And on top of creating a successful podcast and wielding an amazing classic radio voice, one that I'm admittedly jealous of, Mr. Sternberg is also a very skilled wordsmith. His media bylines include articles for Queer Majority, A Real Magazine, and his own personal substack, again called History Impossible. And he's actually doing some very creative things regarding the blending of his audio and long-form essay content recently. And by this I mean he's presenting many of his newest musings in a podcast form. And I find this to be an especially engrossing experience, since, within the audio medium, he's able to add a second dimension to his work by incorporating his vocal cadence and the historical musical pieces that really bring the topics to life. And finally, I implore you to head over to Alex's Patreon page, which will be featured prominently in the show notes, because he has recently done an act of bravery I hope to mimic one day. He has officially left the 9-to-5 rat race and is focusing exclusively on creating content for a living so that you, dear listener, can have a better grip on our current reality by understanding the past. Alex would sincerely like to make content creation his full-time job, and to do this, he needs support from people like you, something that I proudly do myself and hopefully you will too after checking out his work. So head to Patreon, where you will easily find the History Impossible page with payment tiers for budgets from the humblest of paupers to the gaudiest of nobles. So, not only is this man a talented podcaster, a prolific writer, and an insightful thinker, but also a good friend whom I have nothing but the maximal respect for. He's one of the most level-headed and perceptive people I've ever known, and I count myself as fortunate for having crossed his path. So, with all that in mind, I present to you an interview with Herr Alexander von Sternberg I. All right, Alex, how are you today? I'm good. Good to be, glad to be here. Did you uh, bring your black pills with you? <laughs> Actually, to be honest, I brought my white pills because of... Okay. I, I, I hope you can share some of those because I have the whole bottle of black pills right <laughs> Just in front of don't, me. Don't, don't take them. Don't take them. <laughs> you're the only thing that's going to prevent me from taking them today. So I'm so, going to try. I don't know. It's it's and honestly, they're not white pills as much as they're probably gray pills. That's that's I'm I'm permanently gray pilled. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously today we're going to be discussing Ted Kaczynski's infamous Unabomber Manifesto, Industrial Society and its future. But before we get into it. There was a funny little thing I wanted to mention. So I thought I'd take it back to the mid-90s for a second because this was when Kaczynski was apprehended. And uh, at the same time, Saturday Night Live was one of my favorite shows at that time. 
Now I'm talking mid to late '90s. So you had like uh, you had Jim Brewer, you had Anna Gasteyer, Will Ferrell, who actually played the Unabomber in a bunch of sketches, <laughs> and like Tim Meadows and Sherry O'Terry, right? But most importantly, Norm Macdonald was on the Weekend Update at that time. And oh, yeah. I don't know if you if you recall, but he would constantly go on about the Unabomber. And there was this one joke that he did that always stuck with me. So I thought I'd start off with that. Okay. He says, <laughs> so he says, uh, okay, according to Star Magazine, Unabomber suspect Ted Kaczynski is still a virgin at the age of 53. But this really isn't that surprising, considering that Kaczynski's best pickup line was, your dirty wooden shock or mine? <laughs> Uh, it's funny because I associate Norm Macdonald uh, during the weekend update years as being obsessed with O.J. Simpson, not the Unabomber. <laughs> he did tons of material on it. But yeah, actually, yeah. anyone listening, go look up a couple SNL Will Ferrell Unabomber sketches on YouTube and you'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm going to be looking um, those up actually after we finish here because that sounds so <laughs> funny to me. Actually, one of my favorites is the uh, Ted Kaczynski Harvard class reunion sketch. That's a really, really good one. <laughs> okay, right. but but to, but to properly set the table, I have a couple of quotations to start our conversation off. Uh, the first is by a man named Alex Uziel, who is seems to be an online Kaczynski expert. But he notes that, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But he says, "Quote: In any supposedly free society committed to truth, it's especially important that the most controversial and dangerous topics." typically held by despised minorities, are deliberated accurately and honestly. If a society fails to properly address arguments because it despises who makes them or considers them too uncomfortable or too dangerous, it may well follow a course of action that leads to disaster. Given our world's precarious social and environmental situation, the process of open and honest evaluation of these minority opinions is more important than ever. The fate of our planet and our lives could very well be at stake. Ted Kaczynski presents many of these kinds of dangerous and uncomfortable arguments. So to start off, do you have any comments about that, about us discussing the works of a terrorist and killer? Well, I, I got to say, like, I mean, as I was listening to your um, – because I actually decided to listen to your reading of his uh, manifesto instead of just reading it myself because, you know, it's easier and I just would rather give you the listen <laughs> for that, <laughs> give, you the, uh, give you the numbers. But uh, but also just because, it, you know, you did a great job on that. And I got to say, as I've said to you, you know, before – I think more than once before recording, I have never felt more uncomfortable agreeing with someone <laughs> on a okay. lot of things. Uh, I disagree with him on a lot of things too, obviously, because I think anyone who makes good points uh, are, are going to make points that you both agree and disagree with. Uh, it's very easy for me to understand why people do agree with him. And even I, I won't say I, I don't understand people venerate him as much as, as they do in some in some circles, but I do understand why people like to point to him as being smarter than, you know, we give him credit or more, uh, 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 important that we give him credit because of his actions. I think that that is very true. I think he's had a lot of things to say as we'll get into, but yeah. And I think that when it comes down to us not wanting to give a fair hearing to someone who is a monster, I, you know, I, I think that that is an understandable disconnect. It kind of relates to stuff that kind of in a roundabout way, what we talked about 
uh, about you know the uh, the state of Hollywood okay. when I had you on my show, and how I, we didn't really get into this specifically, but it's sort of how people will try to erase the great work that certain artists did because of their monstrous behavior, which again, I personally understand. I had, tr- I, I found out that my limit was Bill Cosby. <laughs> I, I can't still enjoy one of the greatest standup specials of all time, Bill Cosby himself the same way anymore because of what I know about him, but I'm able to enjoy a Woody Allen film or, or more, more to the point, a Roman Polanski film. He, he's a brilliant filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite uh, World War II era films or set films is The Pianist with Adrian Brody. I mean, it's an amazing film. And Rosemary's Baby comes to mind. My point is just that you can separate the art from the artist. I think we know that. The, the deeper question is, can we separate the ideas from the terrorist? Okay, and fair enough. That becomes a little dicier because people have died. And I think that it's very important to always make it clear that just because you are into the ideas, even a little bit of a terrorist, it doesn't mean that you're into what they did. I agree. Because I mean, wh- the terrorism, it, it might be connected to what they did, but the ideas are are uh, mundane on their own. Or, or it's like you can be ambivalent about the ideas while being like totally horrified by the actions. I, I think that's possible. I think it should be possible. I agree. And that's one of the reasons I, I wanted you to come on the show and discuss this is because you're not uncomfortable with talking about controversial things of which, I don't know, you, could, you couldn't find much <laughs> more controversial stuff than this, even though as when we'll get to the section about political violence, I have some questions about why this is not not able to be spoken about so openly. But uh, just to, to wrap right. up the intro, uh, I have another quote by a political scientist named James Q. Wilson, who in writing about the uh, industrial society and its future said, quote, if it is the work of a madman, then the writings of many political philosophers like Rousseau, Paine, and Marx are scarcely more sane. End quote. <laughs> that, is, that is an amazing point. I, I gotta say. I, I never have... Th- I, it's, I was saying that, but I didn't think about it in that particular way. I really like okay. that quote. Okay, That's so great. again, I wanted to start off with another question for you. So if we, if we take sure. a step back... Alex, we have at our in our world right now, we have chatbot AI, we have driverless cars, we have proposed central mm-hmm. bank digital currencies, Boston Dynamics war cybergs, Bitcoin maximalism, 3D printed ghost guns, creeping deep fake media, CRISPR gene editing, Japanese sex robots, synthetic meat production, gain-of-function virus research, drone warfare, quantum computing, the groundwork for global bioengineering, nuclear arsenals, imminent neural linking, the average person staring at a black mirror for one-third of their waking hours, and Trump-issued NFTs. So, so Alex, was Kaczynski right, or was he completely right? <laughs> Um, I think he's more right than he thought. Um, I, I'm sure I, I have not read it. You've actually looked a little bit into his like post arrest work, which um, it, I, I, I'm very curious about, which maybe we can get into at some other point. Maybe you'll do another episode about it, honestly, if it ends up uh, tickling your fancy. But uh, yeah, I, I would imagine Ted, as I'm going to call him uh, this whole time, 
because I feel like I know him at this Me too. point, <laughs> listening to his manifesto and watching uh, him being interviewed, which, by the way, watching him be interviewed or listening to him be interviewed, he, he does not have the voice you would expect. No, not at all. Like he, he sounds like a, like a big dorky nerd because that is what he is. He just happened to know how to make bombs and live off the land. <laughs> so, uh, but he, uh, but, but yeah, I think he would very much feel validated by the world, by, by looking at the world that we live in. I, I am curious how connected to the outside world he's able to be now. I mean, I know that he's, he's getting up there in years and apparently he's not doing well. Uh, I think he gave out like a, an announcement to his fans uh, somehow. I don't, I, I don't think he has a website that he runs or anything, but anyway, he, he gave an update that uh, his health isn't doing great. So I don't know how, like how that has affected his ability to, sort of witness the world outside of prison. Uh, and I'll, again, I don't know how he witnesses the world outside of prison to begin with, but I'm sure he's pretty aware of these developments. Yeah, he is. I, I mean, his other book that I've started reading is called Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How. And right. he, I believe mm-hmm. this was written in 2017. Uh, and he, he's okay. very aware of what, what's going on based on the references that he makes throughout the work. Uh, he, he, like I said, I think privately to you, uh, the citations for his newest book is they're longer than the actual chapters and they include stuff that's yeah. right up until the minute, minute. So I believe he was very aware of the outside world, uh, not, not just through correspondence, but, uh, I imagine he would have had some sort of internet access to come up with some of these things. Sure. I would imagine he's probably pretty resigned at this point to how the world has shaken out. He's just, it, it's more like, I, I'm sure he's, he's, uh, I can relate to this actually, where he's like, I was more right than I knew. I told you also, and I'm not happy about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I completely, so. I could see him sitting there with his arms crossed in his, in his cell with a smirk. Like, I, I fucking told you so. I fucking told you so. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Yep. But at the same time, I mean, I, I think, uh, he was, this is where I will give him a, uh, my first critique is that for everything he got right, I mean, he was saying things very broadly and the broader your claims are, the more likely it is they're going to be confirmed in the future. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that he's wrong by any means. It just means that it, the likelihood of him being right is higher because he's not making super specific claims because when he does make specific claims in some cases in the manifesto, it's just completely batshit. Like we can get, we can maybe loop back to this or if you want to talk about now, I can too. Very very quickly. There was a, like there's a few axioms that, that undergird his overall argument about humanity eventually being enslaved by technology, us losing our humanity and destroying the environment in the process. So he's got some basic axioms. I wanted to know if you thought anything about them. Like uh, there's a few points here and we can go through them quick or fast. It's up to you. But this idea of uh, the power process, do you, do you buy into his Mm -hmm. argument for that? The power process being, uh, to reiterate, I want to make sure I'm understanding. The power process is, is, is for humans to have, and again, this connects into his other axiom of autonomy, but that people need uh-huh. defined goals that they come up with on their own and they need to be able to actually do them and achieve them in order to have a fulfilled life. I do buy into the power process as something that applies to some people. But I – and this is interesting because I'm under the impression he did acknowledge this at some point in the manifesto that 
some people just don't have that drive for the power process. I think his way of explaining it would be, well, they've lost the ability to, ha- they've lost the ability to seek that out because of, you know, industrial society and so forth. But I'm honestly more skeptical. Maybe this is more black pill than Kaczynski is. I don't think people have lost that. I think there are just some people who don't desire that kind of autonomy. I, and I think that that's normal. I think that's human because if like that, that's sort of like, I, I, I guess what his argument would be, would be that when you don't have all this technology surrounding you, you don't have the luxury of not having a desire for that power process. That's right. But I'm under the, I, I, I'm kind of biased maybe by modernity, but I think honestly, there are just always people, always human beings who have no desire for seeking out that kind of autonomy. They're just lazy and that's fine. I actually don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I, I do think that there is this sort of uh, like humanity to that kind of listlessness and laziness. I mean, the obsession with which the early colonists of America, the uh, the, the English rather, the uh, the Puritan uh, the Puritan types that they had with lazy people, like the or the British especially, they had they had this uh, this obsession with trying to get rid of the lazy, essentially the waste people as they called them, and like they thought that putting people in the new world would cure them of that. But then, of course, it didn't. There were people who just remained lazy. I, I honestly think that that's just sort of a uh, an inevitability with humankind. I think that there are just going to be some people who want to seek out the power process and some who don't. And I think maybe where I'll give Ted credit is he's probably right saying that the uh, power process is less desirable to people in the modern age than it was before. But I, I, I don't think that there is this sense that it was robbed of humanity. I think there are just people, a lot of people, who just have no desire to exercise it. Okay, so what what kind of percentage would you peg that at right now? People that don't care about the power process, and what do you th- like? What do you? Mm. What would you chalk it up to? Why Why don't well, they care about the power process? If we're talking about today, I'm not going to put out an actual percentage because it would be I'd be pulling out of my ass. But I, I'll say the majority. I would okay. suspect. Um, I think it's sort of like what I I discussed with CJ on Dangerous History, which will come out soon, I'm sure. But also what I talked about with uh, uh, the professional managerial class in my stakeholder Nazism episode. That I think a lot. I think what we're really talking about here, and what Ted might be talking about to a degree, is creatives versus uncreatives. And when I say creatives versus uncreatives, I'm not making a value judgment. I mm-hmm. think some people just don't have it in them to be creative. I mean, not everybody is going to be cre- if everyone was creative, it, like we'd have even more TV shows now <laughs> than, <laughs> than, than we already do, which I still can't get caught up on. But uh, yeah, like I, I think that that's really what the distinction is. And I would say the majority, maybe even vast majority of people don't seek that kind of autonomy or self-expression. I, I really think it has more to do with uh, uh, human nature these days. And I do think, again, I think Ted was on to something when he said that the increasingly uh, slavish relationship we have with technology is probably making it worse uh, because we're getting so we're so easily uh, entertained and distracted by the technology that surrounds us. And I, I think maybe where I would have a quibble with him is just is is stating how bad that actually is i mean i i'm i'm not convinced that 
it's as dire as he puts it. But I also understand why he puts it in such dire terms, which, you know, I can get to in a second if you want, uh, because I do understand what he what I think his overall argument is based on a very semi reasonable fear. I should say, but yeah, I I'll think, let you respond I, to what I just Yeah, said. I think he's going, what, I think you touched on it. He's going for the more that society gets into a technological existence, the, the less that people have a need for autonomy and the power process, which he actually, I think he actually references Brave New World at one point, where how, mm-hmm. how far does this go before we all are, are all just classified by the government and we are given our SOMA and we don't care about anything except just existing? Like that old, mm-hmm. that old thing about is the unexamined life even worth living? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think what he is fearing in that respect also, though, is the fact that what is being created is uh, a very tightly coupled system. He doesn't use that term, but it's a, it's a term that I've been obsessed with since like 2020 because I was reading this book called Meltdown mm-hmm. by Chris Clearfield and uh, Andras Tilksik, I think is his, uh, the, uh, his co-author's name. And they talk about how uh, things like nuclear power plants melt down, uh, like Chernobyl comes to mind immediately, and how the pro- the problem isn't that they are fragile; they're not. They're they're uh, they're very intricate and tightly coupled. And the more tightly coupled something is, the worse a catastrophe is going to be when the system unravels. And the argument I've made. Uh, more than once at this point, is that society is the tightest coupled system of all. And I think the more we get inundated with technology, the tighter coupled the society becomes. So when the right circumstances, in air quotes, right, happen all at once, and everything comes unraveled, the more catastrophic it'll be. I think without saying it, I think Ted recognizes that, that when the system becomes so tightly coupled that uh, a catastrophe occurs, the worse we're going to be able to handle it. Absolutely. I mean, and I would agree with him. If, if we got hit with a big solar flare and lost the internet, like altogether, I don't think, I don't think that could happen. But let's just say, or a, a meteor hits or something and ends civilization as we know it, we would be way worse equipped than someone like Ted would be mm-hmm. if he was still living out in the middle of the woods. He'd probably be relatively fine as long as he didn't freeze or burn to death. I, I think like people like preppers have it right in that sense. But the likelihood of a catastrophic meltdown on the level of civilization is so low, all things considered. But the trade-off is that when it does melt down or you know, break down, it's going to be really bad. And I think that's what Ted is focusing on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know you didn't have the benefit of reading it, but in anti-tech revolution, he does kind of note that the tighter the systems are coupled, the more likely they Uh are to be broken down if something catastrophic happens. So I think he actually Mm -hmm. points out the 2008 financial collapse in it and how, how quickly that spread around the world and how, how like, flagrantly they were grasping at straws to try and get this thing to settle down in its aftermath so but actually and mm-hmm. i think he actually points towards it in industrial society that he's kind of rooting for a sort of accelerationism he he wants yeah, the system. I, was, I actually made a note of that he's a he's a he's a total accelerationist in in that respect 
California has the largest population in the United States and the site of some of the most famous true crime cases in history. But there's more than meets the eye to the crime in California. Join Sean, Jessica, and Charles on the California True Crime Podcast as they cover crime both infamous and overlooked from around our state while looking at the deeper history that goes beyond beaches and movie stars. And he actually, there's a couple white pills actually in anti-tech revolution where he <laughs> talks about that, that being one of the possible outs is that the self-propelling systems that are taking slowly uh, centralizing power, uh, they'll eventually become so tightly knit that they'll collapse in on itself. Um, so it's yeah. interesting to hear him talk about that later, but okay. If we want to move on to the next little axiom, uh, what do you, what do you make about his assertion about surrogate activities? That was the part where he started to lose me a little bit. And by that, I mean, I was kind of, I mean, maybe I'm being too postmodern or too relativistic, but I, my issue with his axiom about surrogate activities is that he's essentially being a purity tester. Like, why are, like, why are these surrogate activities any less meaningful than what he would consider pure activities. Like I get what he's saying. He does create a consistent logical basis in his argument, but I also think it's fundamentally antisocial because he doesn't actually address the possibility that these surrogate activities do provide lots of meaning. And these, um, <clears throat> sorry, there was a noise in the background. Uh, uh, they, I'll say it again he doesn't acknowledge that these surrogate activities as he calls them might provide meaning to people like actual meaning and they die contented, you know, in old age, like an example that I would assume he would call a surrogate activity is being a fiction writer like Stephen King, for example, writing hundreds of books by the time he's dead, he's going to die happy because he was able to write all these books, entertain a lot of people and be, content with that now i can't read stephen king's mind maybe he will die unhappy and be like i never really lived a meaningful life i don't know but i can't imagine that that's going to be the case i think a lot of artists who engage in surrogate activities uh with their art die happy because what they did had meaning to them they were able to self-express and they were able to entertain others I, and I, the impression I get is that Ted would just shake his head and laugh at that notion. But yeah, I, just, I think he would just kind of, yeah, he would sit there and go like, well, you, you really don't know what happiness is because I know what that is, well, right? Like, well, I, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, frankly, here's the ironic thing. What I would say, what that was the sense I got is that he was kind of smugly smirking at his audience who would say you're full of shit in so many words to which I'd say, who are you to determine what has meaning? It feels very fascist to me. Uh, very totalitarian to me that his standards are the right ones and that everyone else's standards are wrong. Like that is the, that is the calling card of a totalitarian is somebody saying, no, 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 no. I know what's good for everybody else. Yeah. I guess his only argument would have to be that, you know, Stephen King writing a book that doesn't actually help 
anyone if you look at it from a purely biological perspective. Whereas him <laughs> going another out, problem he has. Yeah, we're, yeah we're, he's very whereas, deterministic in that sense. Yeah, so he's going out hunting and he's very satisfied going through the power process and keeping his biological body alive, and that's giving him all the happiness he needs when you you shouldn't be wasting your time. Uh, you know, writing things like what's really the point if you're going to be technologically enslaved at some point, Stephen King isn't going to exist anymore. You know, the technocrats will destroy everything anyway. So what is really the point of that? You should probably, you should probably yeah. just abandon yeah, it that, and go live simply. Right. And that's his, that's his black pill right there. Is that like, well, because none of this matters, you might as well live simply because then everything you do will matter at that point, which it, I don't know if that if the right term is circular argument, but it just mm-hmm. it strikes me as such a sort of like it it, it strikes me as the, the the sort of paradox of pessimism, I guess, okay. like where it's like the only way for the world to work is by my terms where everything is awful. You know what I mean? Like it, it's it's again, it's it's really interesting because when he talks about surrogate activities, that's always where he loses me even though he's very capable of diagnosing the problems that ail our society. And it just, it's really frustrating when he gets into that, into that sort of like, well, the answer to these problems is just to shut yourself off from the rest of the world and live the way I say is the best way to live. Now I'll give him credit. He probably wouldn't be a totalitarian ruling over people based on his worldview. He's very much a absolutist when it comes to freedom. But at the same time, the standards that that he basically puts on everybody else has a very totalitarian tone to me, and that's always what kind of bothers me. I, I mean, I, I guess you could call me too much of a left lib kind of in a sense, <laughs> like a left libertarian, where I just think that like if whatever makes you happy is fine. I do think that there is a a, a sort of like false equivalence that he makes. And he does use this term where he says that freedom is not the same as permissiveness. Yes. And I agree he is right that it's not the same thing, but permissiveness, excuse me, permissiveness is part of the freedom equation. You have to be permissive of other people's behavior. If you're not permissive of other people's behavior, then you're just, you know, you know, harming, you know, uh, the ability for them to live freely. Now, there are exceptions, and I think the best sort of litmus test for freedom is is what you're doing robbing someone else of the ability to give consent. So that basically takes care of th- horrible things like child pornography and disgusting things like bestiality and stuff okay, like that. Yeah. Those things cannot – like those things, children, but the, 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 those kinds of uh, uh, like uh, realms, you're entering into a world where consent cannot be given. So therefore, it is an immoral act at that point. And I don't know what he would have to say to that, that sort of distinction there. But I think that permissiveness, as long as consent isn't being robbed, murder, rape, things like that too, like I, I don't really see what the issue is at that point. I feel like that that is like the, the limit of freedom right there. Well, again, isn't his, isn't his understanding of permissiveness kind of within the technological society where he would say something like, you're you're allowed to, you're, you're permitted to do simple things that don't matter. Like you can choose Coke or Pepsi, but you don't actually choose if you have to go out and work to buy the Coke or Pepsi. Yeah. And I I think like he, he's basically with that analogy, I think it's a good one. He's 
what he's trying to say is the choices that we make that that give us the illusion of freedom are completely well it's an illusion it's like they're they're completely mundane and they don't actually matter uh, to which i i would say sure yeah but that's the i mean <laughs> this is funny because this is why he is such a brilliant man like let's let's just say it he is a brilliant man yeah, absolutely so flawed ideas and flawed methodologies especially to say the least but he is very much right when he says that this is the consequence of a technological society is that the choices you make are mundane mm -hmm. and i i think what eventually gets me to just kind of just roll my eyes at him is just saying like okay well you're asking people to live in such a way where they have to give up convenience that is literally never going to happen no one except frankly people as insane as him will ever give up convenience that is just not how we are how we're programmed convenience is what human beings always strive for i think a lot of people do make the mistake and something i'm going to be getting into in a podcast and putting out soon actually people make the mistake of thinking that that means humanity is progressing when it could not be further from the truth. We are not progressing. We are basically, in the short term, a static species. We're motivated by all the same stuff. But the idea that we are not trying that 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 we're going to give up trying to find convenience in our lives is a complete fantasy in his part. It's very utopian, in 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 my opinion, at least, that he thinks we can somehow give that up. And that's a good segue because, um, well, there's a famous dead Kennedy's album called give me convenience or yeah. give me death. Right. But that also right. he's a leftist and this is gets to another big subset of Kaczynski's ideas. Uh, these, these dual ideas of over socialization and sort of mm -hmm. the, the cultural pathology of leftism being invasive in everything in life. Now he, he, mm -hmm. what I, it, it's very strange in his book. he, allots a disproportionate amount of time to going over what is wrong with the left. Now, what did you make uh -huh. of his analysis of the left? Because there were parts of it that I saw as somewhat prophetic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and I, and I use the, uh, the term progressive in this case because I do think that a lot of what he has to say about the left broadly doesn't necessarily apply to a lot of leftists, especially of a uh, radical socialist persuasion in a lot of cases. Uh, I think that the people who are very concerned with uh, material concerns, I should say, are are. I don't think that it really applies to them as much, though. Funny enough, I think his argument about the insecurity of the left does apply to socialists as well. But when it comes to the idea, for example, I, I took a note here that that progressives look down on the marginalized. I, I was just like that is the most prophetic thing. Yeah. I think that in a lot of ways that he has said about. Uh, the the psychology of leftism, as he called it, which you know, psychology. That's my jam. I I, I can't. And, and granted, he is armchair psychologizing everything. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he's not. He's not a professional, but I think that he definitely has some uh, some cor correct notions there. But I, I I think that when he talked about insecurity, it was really interesting. And maybe he has said more about this in recent years. I don't know, but. I would also posit that what he leaves out in talking about the insecurity of leftists is that there's a lot of insecurity in conservatives, especially these days. I mean, and it it wasn't really the case when he wrote the manifesto. This is the 90s. So I think this is that's another thing that I, I really wanted to make clear is that a lot of my critiques that I, I made notes on this, I always like I, I like put a little 
like a tag on all of these notes I took where I was like, look, a lot of these critiques that I have might just be because what he was writing was a product of his time that he was, you know, writing in. He okay. was, you know, writing in the nineties. I mean, I'm assuming, did he write the manifesto in the nineties or did he like write it long before and then send it in eventually? Do you know? I'm not clear on that. I was under the impression that there was like, this was, uh, the culmination of over a decade's work and, uh, Okay. I, he had another essay, I believe it was called technological slavery that he, that, uh-huh. that this, uh, this manifesto was building off of. So there are other okay. works that can go along with it, but no, I think it was the culmination of many years of work. Sure. Okay. So he's, but regardless, he's talking about, you know, the political landscape of the nineties, in which case I think a lot of conservative thinkers and writers and politicians, at least in the United States, were much more of the Reagan mold, yes. the uh, the neoliberal mode uh, mold, if you will. And I, but I think like when you flash forward to today, especially around 2016, like the the election of Donald Trump and the populist demagogic mutation of the GOP. Though I, I would say it's not sincere. I think that Mitch McConnell's of the world are still very much the you know Reagan butt boys, as I like to call them. But uh, but like you know you have populist representatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene and. Uh, <laughs> I love that this was trending, by the way, on Twitter. I wrote this down because I didn't want to forget it. Rapey McForehead, aka Matt <laughs> Gates. Uh, they, they like th- that kind of um, that kind of conservatism strikes me as rooted in a very profound insecurity and reactionaryism. Populism arises because of a lot of different insecurities out there. I mean, it, it comes from all sorts of things, like the perception of inequality and corruption, the uh, the rise in immigration plays a part. Uh, you know, like demagogues appear because of stresses like that, because of insecurities caused by that. The, the you know, a lot has been written about the, uh, the, the failure of the Democrats to support the working class as they once did back in the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would argue that progressives have never cared about the working class, despite, you know, them saying they do, uh, because the working class is inconvenient for them. They want the, they want the working class to disappear and become middle class. Like that's sort of always been the progressive goal. But in this case, though, I, I, I think that like we've seen something very interesting with the mutation of popular conservatism, at least in the United States, and probably abroad in some cases too, where populism has kind of been on the rise. And I actually, you know, to be honest, I'm very curious what he has to say about that. I don't know if he's ever written anything about this populist uh, rise in in the last couple of years. I mean, as you said, the the anti-tech revolution book, he wrote that in 2017. So I'll be really curious if he even brings it up. Uh, but I don't know if that's even remotely relevant to what he's thinking. But I that that the insecurity question I I thought was a much I think he kept it too narrow and he's really talking about broader pop uh politics in general is that it's rooted in a lot of insecurity that it can just as easily be applied to the right as it can be to the left okay so yeah insecurity i i haven't actually finished the whole anti-tech revolution book so i don't know if he mentions it later on but wouldn't he say something like i imagine he would say something like the populist backlash that we see it's it's people lashing out at the technological system, even though they don't realize that it is like that is the root at everything that they're actually mad at, but they don't know where to direct their anger. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think that that is a good point. I think that he uh, 
would probably give more leeway to right-wing populists. Though, again, I think if he saw how many left-wing populists and right-wing populists team up, uh, especially these days, uh, to lash out against this system, I think he, I, I, that's the part I'd be really interested in, in hearing him uh, flesh out. If he was like, oh, okay, interesting. The left isn't all uh, like, you know, like all bad, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't think of a better way of putting it. Um, but uh, the, the, I, I do really like that he points out the masochism in uh, in, in leftists where like I, I, I don't remember the actual phrasing, but he he does very appropriately bring up the sort of Noam Chomsky esque view that a lot of leftists have that the United States is not only never a force for good or the West is never a force for good, but it is the most evil out of all, you know, out of all systems out there. Uh, but again, that's another thing that I think is more a part of populism that is also characteristic on the right these days, especially if you look at how they were so, so many of them were so willing to jump on the NATO caused the war in Ukraine bandwagon mm -hmm. where I'm in, let's not pretend NATO didn't play a role, but Putin made his own choices, you know, like other world leaders make their own choices and they don't need our permission to do these things. And I think that that is a characteristic of both the left and the right that, uh, that where they, they want to ascribe, at least in the populist realm, they want to ascribe the most amount of blame they possibly can for, uh, uh, for, for the world's ills on their own country. That masochism is very real, but I, I don't think it's exclusive to the left. And again, I think that might also be a product of when he wrote it because that was the 90s. And the right, again, was kind of in their love affair with Reaganomics at that point. So I don't think that it really applied back then to both, but I think it very easily can. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. Uh, let's move on a little bit to another sure. topic. Um, so as I was reading it, um, one overarching thing that I got from the book and it, it's actually, it's interesting that it even has to be said in, in, in the way <laughs> that he did. But the one overarching thing I got is that we aren't even aware of how we're the frog slowly boiling in the technological pot. I mean, is mm -hmm. the, the lens that he applies to looking at, at world events in the news and such is so, it's almost like in the Jordan Peterson way of saying obvious things that you don't hear. So like yeah. his, his anti-technological lens, like it can be forgotten while we're in the grasp of this thing. If you accept mm -hmm. his premise, which I do, I accept the premise that we are in a highly technological society and it's only intensifying. So it's striking, though, to analyze anything that you consume content-wise, media-wise, that if you apply that lens as opposed to like what I would normally do with a political lens, right, or some people would apply a social lens or a psychological lens, he's purely, almost purely adding this anti-technological lens. And from some of the random stuff that I've compiled here that I can explain, when, <laughs> you, when you read it from a certain, when you read it from his vantage point, you, you're almost tempted to like say like, fuck man, like he was fucking right. Like, for example, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm reading, and again, I'm, this is, are you familiar with Chronicles magazine? It's like I'm not no. So it's like it's it's a post-liberal magazine. Um, okay. Anyways, I'm not of that. I just I find it very interesting. But 
So the fact the, the, it's kind of like um, there, there's another one called a uh, compact mag. Uh, compact magazine is an online post-liberal magazine that brings together left and right people of a post-liberal persuasion that it, you know, I'm not of that persuasion, but I find what they have to say very interesting. So I'm, I'm sure I'd find Chronicle interesting. Absolutely. And that's actually a quick point I can make before that is that you're, you're familiar with the, uh, the political compass chart. Obviously, right? Of course, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you, like, Kaczynski, if you pegged him on it, he would be returned to Monk, right? He would be at the very bottom, yeah. right? He would be right at the yeah, bottom yeah, yeah. of the libertarian. So I, I've always found, and regardless of the topic or whatever issue is being discussed, that you, if you go to the extremes of that political compass uh, spectrum, so if you even if you go full tanky or you go full fash or you, uh, you go pure ANCAP or, you know, Antifa yeah. on the other side, they all have something interesting to say about whatever is being talked about, but that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that you take it on wholeheartedly. Uh, of course. But they all have something interesting to say. But regardless, I just wanted to bring that up quickly. Um, but sorry, getting back to this little article from Chronicles, it was written by Leopold Termond, who was the founding editor of Chronicles, and he writes this, and I'm just going to go over a few examples if you hear me out for a sec. So, sure, sure. So he writes, uh, quote, Some time ago, one could read in the New York Times book review that now ideas matter, that intellectual movements are now influencing politics. But hasn't always been so? Didn't ideas always generate political events, only in slower sequence than in the era of telex and communication satellites? Aren't the TV anchormen and press editorialists just the tom-toms of the idea producer, only quicker in transmitting the watchword to the immense audiences? The highbrow culture enamored by radicalism has been particularly beneficiary of this rapid change, end quote. So there's that, right? So again, mm-hmm. my takeaway from that is that, and I'll get to this other idea I have in a second, which is you've heard the the, the popular thing about politics being downstream from culture yeah yeah which uh i i got it we got to give uh <laughs> begrudgingly give andrew breitbart some credit there well, uh, but i mean i think he i don't think it's always been the case but i think it definitely is now well, for sure from what i after reading the manifesto what i'm gathering is that i largely agree with politics being downstream from culture but that politics are probably uh, sorry yeah politics are downstream from culture but that culture itself is downstream from technology And I guess this could kind of get into a Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman kind of idea of the media being the message and this and that. But so that's my first example. This editor was noticing that in the advent of rapid communication, that's what's able to get the leftist message out into the public so, so obviously and so pervasively. So in, in the absence of technology, would radicalism even be as much of a thing? So that's okay. In the absence of technology, would radicalism be much of a thing? Yeah. That's a really good question. So, okay. And yeah. then think about that for a sec. I'll go on to my second example. So, uh, sure. this author, this woman named Louise Perry, are you familiar with her? Uh, yeah, I've heard of Louise Perry. Uh, who is she? She's, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to sidetrack, but I've heard of her. I she's an author and like a, an anti-feminist, right? Okay. Okay. So she was yeah, on. I, I, I'm aware of her existence. Okay. So yeah. Sure. <laughs> so she was on uh, Michael Shermer's podcast, and she was talking about how feminism had, had was awful for women in the long run. If you take a step back and look at everything, like I'm not necessarily, I'm not saying I agree with her. I'm just saying 
in the context of our discussion, she was on there, his podcast, talking about how bad feminism was and that she almost inadvertently admitted that part of the reason that feminism was able to take hold was because of the technological innovations that put them into the the position to promote feminism as a thing with like the the advent of the pill or the advent of Mm -hmm. uh, everyday household chores being made easier by appliances and contraception, etc. So without even realizing it and, and looking through it through Ted's lens, she's kind of saying that the whole feminist ideas that are being foisted on society are really the result of technological innovation, not of women's right. rights. Okay. And then, well, that would be the, uh, that would definitely, that would definitely be the second wave and afterward of feminism. I don't know if that applies to first wave feminism, which was animated by the right to vote. And unfortunately, uh, because it was so unpopular and puritanical, but the, <laughs> the abolishment of alcohol, uh, but, uh, the, yeah, like I, 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 that is a very interesting point, especially if you're talking about post-second wave feminism and especially when you get into like the wilder, wackier theories of third and fourth wave feminism. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah. Okay, so g- moving on a little bit more, then there was uh, – I was listening to Nate Silver's podcast, uh, 530. Okay. And he had on this guy. He was a Harvard uh, psychological researcher named uh, Robert Waldinger and the topic was called The Politics of Loneliness. And – what they kind of came up with was that, and, and again, they without saying it the way that Ted would, they were pretty much saying that the whole, like the atomized reality of most people yes. in society right now is a byproduct of technology and that it's intensifying yes. because of social media and everything you can do online. Yes, okay. that was something I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was one, that was probably in a lot of ways the part of Ted's manifesto that resonated so much with me that I think if he is like a like let's say he can listen to podcasts in prison that'd be cool if he could I guess I don't know <laughs> if he heard that podcast he would have just been punching the wall being like yes yes yes, yes I was saying this uh, but like yeah I mean I, I think that yeah the atomization effect uh, of of the internet in general but I'll say social media in particular is it's thankfully becoming more well-trod territory in the commentariat of our culture. But I, I, the funny thing is though, and I'm sure Ted would point this out too. I haven't really heard too many uh, solutions apart from one that Ted would probably endorse, which is the infamous uh, touch grass uh, <laughs> statement. Yeah. yeah. Which I, and it, he would probably agree with that. He would say it's not enough, but he would say that's a good start. Touch grass and go be with people in real life. That is a solution to the atomization of our culture, but it's not the solution. And it's obviously not helping because people are still lonelier than ever. Again, and, and this ties into my last example is that sure. uh, Jordan Peterson had on this guy called Dr. Delroy Paulhus, and they were talking uh-huh. about. Uh, again, he's another. He was a psychologist, a researcher. They were talking a lot about the dark triad, and they were talking about mm-hmm. how those how those manifest in people in society and the prevalence of them, and how they. We noticed- should say that the. We should mention the dark triad is. Uh, is it? It's Machiavellianism. Yeah. Uh, uh, narcissism is that one of them? That's right. Yeah. And what's the third one? Is it just psychopathy oh, in general? It's, yeah, it's psychopathy. Yeah, you're right. But okay. what was interesting okay. is that this researcher, he was explaining at length about how 
they've done enough studies on people and over long enough of time that they're actually thinking about adding sadism as part of the dark triad oh. and that sadism has a dark quartet then. Yeah. Exa- yeah. And, and it's actually sadism from his studies over the last couple of decades has been steadily rising almost in tandem with the internet culture. Yeah. And again, expressed so- sadism. I mean, verbal sadism, I would say, because obviously people aren't, well, I don't know. I, I, I would. I don't want to tell this guy he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's obviously a real psychologist, and I'm just an amateur podcaster. But I, I but I, I am under the impression, by the way, that sadism kind of falls under psychopathy. Like to be a psychopath, you have to take not only like not care about other people's feelings, you take pleasure in not caring about their feelings and and using them and so forth. But Again, I will defer to this guy because he's the real psychologist. Oh, I think you're right. No, they made the, the distinction that, yeah, I think that the psychopath just does whatever he can because he doesn't care and they don't necessarily yeah. enjoy it. It's just a means to an end, whereas the Yeah, the, in some cases yeah. at least. And uh, then sadists yeah. actually enjoy what they're doing, right? So all Yeah, all, like like Ted Bundy comes to mind. You know, he's he was a sadist who enjoyed what he was doing. Absolutely. And all all I yeah. mean uh, with all these examples is that Sure. Ted's analytical lens for looking at the world, it's very, it's striking how, how much you can chalk up to technology when you take a step back and look at it, whereas why I mentioned we're the boiling frog and we don't even realize it because usually when mm-hmm. people are talking about the issues of the day, they're putting it through what seems to be, if you take a step back, a, a narrow lens, like they're talking about mm-hmm. it politically, they're talking about it socially. Well, none of these things would even be a thing without the technology that facilitates all these evils. And I think that's, that, mm-hmm. that's all I, I just wanted to say, did you find that at all, that his way of looking at the world is beneficial in that regard? It's, uh, it's the, I would say that his way of looking at the world is the peak strength of conservative thought. Uh, because I've said this, I think I might have even said it to you in conversation at some point that, the problem as I see it politically, which again is narrow, but I, I think it's profound too that conservatives are the ones that we should turn to to look at the diagnosis of problems of society. And progressives or leftists at least should be the ones that we turn to to come up with ideas for solutions to those problems. And the problem of politics today is that neither side is staying in their lanes. Well, oh, sorry, just look at, uh, sorry, quickly, go just before go you go on, can you address this too? Because Ted actually notes that in the, in the book and he says yeah. that, and again, I wish he would have had that term progressive because you're right. That's much more applicable than leftist. But one of his yeah. accusations is that you just said something about solving problems. Well, his his mm-hmm. accusation in it is that technology keeps creating new problems without solving the old problems. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on that, but that is another good point. Yeah, I mean, and I and again, though, but to loop back to him diagnosing things, yeah. I, I think that he is very like he, he's the person we should like kind of look at or look to to diagnose the broad problem of technology of what it's doing to us. I think his solution is kind of indicative of a conservative not staying in their lane because it's absurd. I mean, even though some of it is, you know, reasonable, like, again, if we if we boil it down to the essence of touch grass, it is what his solution is, (laughs) essentially. But uh, I, I think he goes into such an extreme direction that it just doesn't make any sense in the context of our world. This is why you need some kind of 
powerful analytical thinker on the left to posit some potential solutions because and I'm saying this by the way from a perspective from a psychological perspective where it's been pretty much shown that the personality traits of people on the left involve openness to experience and other things that are uh, like amenable to creativity. That's why they are the ones that can come up with solutions to the problems that conservatives point out because conservatives are high in conscientiousness and uh, like a hyper awareness to uh, uh, problems, I, I would say. And I, I think in in that case, we would maybe be able to find some kind of really interesting solutions out there if we found a uh, a, a left oriented person willing to engage with these with these ideas, which is another problem in and of itself. Because and that also feeds into the thing we were talking about right at the beginning, which is how do we yes and this guy's ideas when we have to countenance the fact that he's killed people yes. and tried to kill many many more. So it's it's that's the frustrating part, and that and. and you know, maybe we can loop back to that because that is a the the big philosophical uh, hair in the soup in a way is like his methodology was objectively immoral. Uh, but anyway, the um, I think like his way of diagnosing society vis a vis the technological issues that create new problems is definitely the correct one. I think he would say that it's too slow to try to deal with each problem created by technology one at a time. But I, I think that's what you kind of have to do is take do a case by case basis kind of thing. And I think like if we used him as like the baseline, I think we'd be much better off his ideas, I should say. Okay. Yeah. Because I think even he would say not only, <laughs> not only does technology create new problems, then we haven't solved the old ones, but even if you wanted to implement solutions, this is completely out of your control as well. You have no, there's mm -hmm. no autonomy or power process assertion in anything. Like for example, I think he would say something like, think about it, you could be attacked by another country and you can't do anything about it. The economic decisions of your life are completely out of your control, like inflation being a pretty prescient one right now. Uh, sure. Your ecological situation of, of the, the carbon dioxide in your atmosphere, you, you have no control over these things. And trying to think that you can solve them is foolish because you won't actually be able to solve them unless you destroy the technological system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think his... Uh... His weakness, I guess we could say, is that he is thinking way too broadly. Because when you think that broadly, it is absolutely true that you can't solve this issue. But so, so you, see, you kind of see the paradox that's been created here by Ted, I should say, is that when you start saying, okay, well, let's work on this one issue, he'll say, well, it doesn't matter because all the other issues are still there and the, the core issue can't be solved uh, because it's, a, it's technological in nature. Um, I guess what I would say, and maybe I'm naive for saying this, I'm sure he would say so, uh, it's silly to not try. You might as well try within the system because here's what I think he might say, and I'm putting words in Ted's mouth, but I don't care. He's killed people. Fuck him. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he would say, well, like you, you know, uh, like if you try, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to fail. It doesn't matter. Well, frankly, if you, you, you don't know that until you try, <laughs> like you have to try, you have to like try to find a solution to, for example, the loneliness epidemic. We can, you, you can do things to try to fix that. There's the, um, there's an, I haven't read the book yet, but, uh, uh, an editor of mine 
tasked me in writing something about this, um, this, uh, I guess we can call it crisis of manhood these days, okay. uh, where men are falling behind women and so forth. And uh, he was citing a book, I, my, my, my editor, he cited a book, he wrote a review of this book and it sounds really interesting. Um, by a sociologist, I'm forgetting his name, uh, Reeves is his last name, but he basically talks about solutions at the end of his book. And one solution he had for closing this achievement gap between men and women is keep men and keep boys, I should say, in kindergarten for an extra year and close the cognitive gap that, that inevitably arises within boys and girls because girls mature faster. And to that, I'd say, well, yeah, let's just try that. Let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, maybe I'm kind of being <laughs> too much of a progressive saying like, let's, uh, let's experiment on the human population. But to me, I, I, I think like you can strike a balance between ethical and unethical pretty easily when it comes to things like this. And I, and I think like Ted's solution to just abolish the whole thing is just, it's radical. And I think like if you use radical as a baseline, it's it's much easier to to like work your way backwards from it, you know, or maybe work your way towards it. Because maybe if we try all of these different solutions that or come up with solutions to deal with the individual problems Ted is bringing up as part of a whole, maybe we'll come to the conclusion that he was right ultimately. Like that's that's I'm I'm taking kind of a pseudoscientific approach to his thesis, which is like let's disprove essentially everything that he asserts until we can't disprove it anymore. Does that make sense? I'm Dawn and I'm Cole. And Scottish Murders is a true crime podcast dedicated to people from or living in Scotland. Just like anywhere else in the world, these murders can be truly horrific and shocking, and we want to shine more light upon them. Join us every two weeks on Scottish Murders, where we'll bring you cases both solved and unsolved, giving you an insight into the other side of Bonnie Scotland. Find us wherever you stream your podcasts, as well as on social media. Join, Join us there. there. Bye! A conversation about political violence in general. So, sure. Now, I've I've read a couple of things about like people, like supporters of Ted, that have written things that have essentially made the case that if Ted is right, then what he did is, in some to some extent, self defense. Now. <laughs> It's self-defense sure. and it's just okay, whatever you say. I know, I just, but here but here's what I would say. Not that I <laughs> yeah, yeah. not that I endorse it, just that let, like hear me out for one sec. So sure, sure, sure. You yeah. could you could hypothetically turn on the news at any point and you could see John Bolton or Dick Cheney, and they and they can go out there mm -hmm. on, on a talk show and they can go on and on about the merits of preemptive warfare and and you know, again about invading weaker countries and, and subjugating them. And, uh, you know, th if we're talking specifically about, like, those two in the Iraq War, you know, we're talking about a million corpses, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. these guys can go out with dignity and propound these ideas to people publicly without shame and without anyone seriously attacking them for it. But if you subscribe to Ted's philosophy, you're automatically seen as some sort of weirdo or, or loser or 
whatever uh, derogatory things you can come up to say about Kaczynski and his work. But do you see what I mean? That in one instance, yeah. it's completely fine if you go talk about killing a million people, but if you kill three, then all of a sudden you're a monster. Well, he's killing three outside of the system. And that's the distinction right there. It's like it's it's acceptable within the system, but outside of the system, it's not is what I'm gathering from what you're saying here. And I think that that is actually a very interesting distinction. You really don't hear about it outside of anarchist circles all that much. But the idea of the state having a monopoly on violence makes it. Therefore, an immoral structure. I'm assuming Ted would probably agree with that, too, as a uh, what I guess we would call him a. Uh, paleo-anarchist or something or, or anarcho-primitivist i believe is the actual term that's uh yeah that's the um, proper term yeah. yeah 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 and and i and i think that you know that's you know the viewpoint he's coming from where it's like okay well who are you to tell me that what i'm doing is wrong especially when you look at the numerical differences right, that you pointed out there and i think that it is going to always boil down to the uh, what was that Michelle Obama line when they go low we go high kind of thing it's like well either you succumb to the same murderous impulses as the state or you don't if that makes sense and yep. the uh I you know what honestly I, I maybe this is because I grew up in a what is ostensibly a culturally Christian nation. It's like, I don't see the value in, in uh, going as low as the, as the tyrant, you have to go high. And that that's a very Christian idea. I think um, Tom Holland's book, not Spider-Man, <laughs> but Tom <laughs> Holland, the historian, his book dominion about the history of Christianity shows that like, even with the so-called death of Christianity, Christian values have gone nowhere. All you got to do is look at a lot of aspects of what we can now call the woke movement is very christian mm -hmm. i mean putting aside the fact that they were doing literal baptisms at george floyd square which is <laughs> unbelievably sick in my opinion but yeah. that's just me uh as a non-religious person uh but i think also as a human being with common decency it's just, i find that's so sick but the point is is that i i think that what ted is ultimately doing is rejecting the core christian impulse in our culture, which is to fight injustice with um, grace, I guess, to use a high-minded, Jesus-oriented term. You know what I mean? So yeah, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll let you respond to that. Well, first of all, like, I just want to make it abundantly clear that I reject what he did. I, I, I don't, I, sure. I, I, I separate this from like what what he wrote as opposed to what he did I, he did violate the non-aggression yeah. principle which is pretty important to me as being a libertist minarchist uh, kind of person yeah. um but it Same is like here. it's interesting yeah. like it, it's it's fascinating to consider if ted hadn't have taken the murderous route like I, he's smart enough of a guy that it you know i could very easily picture him on a different on a different universe where he's sitting with Sam Harris or sitting with Lex Friedman talking about yeah. an anarchism on a podcast and potentially reaching you know infinitely more people and having them come over to his side through logical arguments as opposed to doing this notorious murder campaign that ultimately mm -hmm. made him a pariah that you can't even discuss 
Well, he did say in his manifesto, he openly said, we have killed people, which I, by the way, I really like that he used the royal we throughout that entire thing. <laughs> that was funny. Very yeah. pretentious, but I liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also needs a copy editor, by the way. He did the as well or the also as well error at one point. I was just like, ah, man. But anyway, that's his biggest problem. <laughs> Uh, but no, he, uh, yeah, like I, I think that his, um, he said we have killed people because that's the only way our message would be heard. And at the time, I, I hate to say it, he was right in the nineties. Like he couldn't have reached anybody with his ideas really, except a small audience. Yeah. But instead he got plastered all over the New York times and Washington post for, you know, doing what he did. And I, I have to admit he probably had to have been as a serial murderer slash terrorist, you know, for that to actually work. But so I guess what I'm saying is he, uh, he was just a little impatient. If he had waited <laughs> about 20 years, he probably could have gotten on those podcasts and spread his ideas far and wide. That's kind of ironic actually, that his ideas that he's so desperate to be read and heard by as many people as possible would have been made and actually are made more popular by the technology he hates so much that it, it, <laughs> i'm sure he's aware of that it's deeply ironic I'm sure he's aware of and that. yeah yeah oh just one quick thing when he was using the sure. we in, in the thing i don't think he was actually referring to the royal we as like lebowski would say but uh oh yeah he was, <laughs> oh he was trying to make it sound like it was an organization not just one person that's correct because he kept saying that it was freedom club Freedom Club was the one that the, oh, the, the terror cell okay. that was disseminating this, right? So he was trying to actually make it seem like there was this huge group of them out there and that they were doing it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's not a terrible idea as far as, you know, a psyop goes, like make people think that there's more than just one crazy person in the woods. See, that again, that's another thing that probably hurt his ability to reach people is that he like was making it sound like he was part of a pretty organized like group when in fact he was just a guy in the woods. Like that is how people refer to him as just some loser in the woods. Yeah. Like you were kind of uh, saying earlier and, but, but yeah, I, I think that it had, he had a little patience and well, he would have had to have a little patience from like what the seventies on. Yeah. <laughs> was, yeah how was, long was he doing that? I mean, 78. It, it's, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Almost 20 years. Like I, I don't think he would have had that kind of patience uh, given the, the black pills he'd swallowed, but just saying though, he could be, I can see him being, you know, some fucking wacky professor at Berkeley or something exactly. like that everybody's like, it's like, oh, have you taken Ted's class yet? Oh man, it's a wild ride. Like he could have been, for better or worse, the next Jordan Peterson <laughs> in a way. Which okay, and I actually because we talked about some of this stuff, it, I, I just wanted to throw in an interesting tidbit, and you don't even necessarily have to respond to it. It's just a little thought sure. experiment, something fun to think about. Uh, well, he was incarcerated. Well, he's still incarcerated, obviously. But at the beginning of his incarceration, did you know that he was on what was known as Bombers Row? No. Okay, so he was he was actually in lockdown with uh, I'm I'm blanking on the guy's name. One sec. So he was while well, he was in this Colorado max security prison. He's in there alongside Ramsey Yusuf, who was the World Trade Center bomber from '93, right? And yes. Timothy, yes, I did, and, I did learn this, and yeah. Timothy yeah. McVeigh, right? So, yes, yeah. <laughs> so I okay, just and this is a weird connection that I made that I'm curious. Have you ever read the Turner Diaries? I, I haven't, but I I know what it is. Yeah, it's like the sort of white nationalist manifesto of sorts from like. 
number of decades ago, right? That's right. Correct. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm not, I, it's an interesting thing to read, but it's not by any means something you should believe. Right. But okay. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you got McVeigh, you got Yusuf. First of all, it'd be interesting just to be a fly on the wall to hear what they would say. But one thing that, that stuck out to me every time I read him write the word, the system in industrial society mm-hmm. in its future that is the exact same terminology that the Turner Diaries used, right? The system was always mm-hmm. the enemy in it. That was the, 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 the government force they were up against, the white nationalists. And uh, Timothy McVeigh's favorite book was the Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries. So I yeah, wonder yeah, yeah. if they spoke about that while they were in I, I mean, see, it would, it would have been probably censored immediately, but I would have loved to hear a podcast with those three guys. <laughs> <laughs> starting a podcast and just talking about that stuff. Like, and, and bring Bin Laden in for, for, for that matter. Oh, that yeah. Really Shit, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, like it's, it's really interesting. Like his whole use of the, uh, the system terminology, uh, the impression I get is really that that's just like – it's funny that like, you know – right-wing types like McVeigh and those who love the Turner Diaries use things, terms like the system when that kind of language was popularized by far-left hippies in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They might have used the term the man, but like it's the same thing. Uh, another deeply ironic thing about uh, Ted Kaczynski, I'll say specifically, is just how for all of the in vain uh, he or, or all, all the invective rather that he directs at the left, he's using a lot of their language, especially if you start to edge into like the green movement, which I'm sure at least eco-fascist, but I'm sure a lot of those people like Extinction Rebellion, if they read his work, they'd be like, oh my God, he's on to something, which again, <laughs> just shows how political distinctions on a spectrum don't really make much sense. They're overlapping ripples in a pond. But actually it's, it's funny like, I mean, on, on the, uh, on, on, on those radical environmentalist front, it's actually, that was actually to me, the funniest part of the manifesto was that he talks right. about the masochism of the leftists and how they actually go out and try and get people to hurt them. As part of the power yeah. process that they're they're laying down in front of cars or they're trying to get racists to abuse them in public so that it furthers the leftist right. agenda. That was one of the funniest lines in the book. I can't remember the it, it is, and especially because it prophesied the uh the, the way uh street protests were just going to be in the I would say post-occupy world, which started to encompass, you know, figures on the right. Again, I think what he's talking about when he's talking about that masochism is the masochism inherent in populism. Because you just see the um you you see how uh like every time you see a protest or a demonstration that involves Antifa and say the Proud Boys, it's always just both egging each other on to see who throws the first punch so then they can blame the other side for being violent. Like that's it, it's just such a it, it again, that's the the irony of things is that, yes, I think the left probably popularized those tactics starting in the 60s. But now everybody uses them who wants to demonstrate on the street. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, OK. okay. Yeah. Um, you want to get on to one more topic? Because I think we've pretty much sure. we've pretty much agreed that. Violence is not the is not the way to go about making any sort of meaningful Kids, change. In violence the world. is not the answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because one of the things that str- that made me think of even talking about that whole topic is that I came across a meme, and it was sure it was just it was a picture of George Washington, and it just said on top of it, uh, "Me and my homies would have been stacking bodies by now." <laughs> <And> so, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I was thinking Ted probably would have liked that one. So <laughs> probably I did. Has he, Oh, this is just a random question just came to my mind. Does he have any thoughts out there on like America's founding on the revolution? Like I, 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 I struggle to sort of figure out what he would think of it because on the one hand he'd be like, well, if that hadn't happened, we never would have been in this mess. But at the same time, I think he. The, the revolutionary spirit would have really resonated with him. I, would think. I think it would have. He did actually mention it in the manifesto. He was talking about. Does he? Yeah. He did, well, he, he, he vaguely mentions how, uh, you know, in, in the, in the Western world at that time, there was this increasing tendency towards democracy anyways. And that even though uh-huh. the, the founding fathers, they sped up the process, but he says it pretty much would right. have happened anyways. So there was really no point okay. in doing it. It, was, it just makes people feel good. It's a mythology that some people can look to for strength. I don't necessarily disagree with him. I mean, I, I would question his deterministic view on how history works. That's something I did take a note on, but you know, I, I've made it pretty clear that I, I have uh, very little sympathy for historical determinism. And again, it's another thing I'm going to be talking about in my next uh, episode I put out, uh, where like, I, I think that people who fall too far into the progressive or cyclical camp of looking at history tend to be very vulnerable to thinking that things are inevitable. But at the same time, I do think that he was right to recognize the trends and forces that was the democratizing spirit of the time. I mean, the Enlightenment had already happened, essentially. Enlightenment thinkers had put out their tracts, and uh, the Founding Fathers were voracious readers of those tracts. So I um, I, I, I think it's it would be naive to think that nothing would have happened at all. Uh, thanks, uh, despite these trends and forces. But I also think that there was no guarantee that the revolution was actually going to happen. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? Oh, what, one kind of just random thought I had when I was sure writing down my notes was uh, it's kind of interesting to me that I chose this to read and to make a podcast series about because when I think <laughs> about it, like the the one of the big bugaboos of like like you were just talking about different populist movements is this obsession with the World Economic Forum and <laughs> and actually like his Kaczynski's book is called Industrial Society in its Future and Klaus Schwab's book is called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is very interesting. Yeah, the way that it's almost and it's it's even stranger still because Ted's environmental concern is actually being borne out by the most global of powers right now who seem to be consolidating uh-huh. things around this climate message. So they're actually mm-hmm. taking what Ted ostensibly cares about, but they're using the technological system to, to gain power and to make that the be-all and end-all right. of, of what's happening. <laughs> so <laughs> That's another deep irony because I am sure – I. I can't imagine Ted doesn't know who Klaus Schwab is. I'm sure. But on top of that, he probably looks at him as the world's biggest villain, like a lot of people do. Uh, I I don't think Klaus Schwab is a benevolent actor by any means, but I also don't think he does himself no favors with the accent and the weird costumes. That's all I'm saying. He he does. He's a supervillain. He looks like a supervillain, sounds like a supervillain. It's just he just should probably stop talking <laughs> because everyone's just going to get worked up when he starts saying, you will own nothing and be happy, <laughs> which I, 
<laughs> I'm oversimplifying. That's another one of those things that got like really blown out of proportion because that was not a prescription. It was a prediction, but regardless. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that there's actually any realistic way that Ted's agenda could be borne out in the real world uh, in the terms of either stopping or pausing technological advances or regressing them in any way is this a complete pipe dream or is is yes. there anything you can act- <laughs> is so there's are you you're kind of blackpilled on that i I am blackpilled on Ted's black pill. Yes. I, I, I think that the idea, I, I said this kind of earlier, uh, that the idea that human beings are going to stop like trying to pursue technological progress is just, it's not going to happen until they're forced to, which I'm sure actually, to be honest, he probably would agree with me if I said that to him because, and that's what his whole, you know, purpose of killing people and attacking institutions and both physically and rhetorically actually was it's to basically, make it so that these things would unravel. Um, But I I, I think that if something happened where uh, like a true catastrophe that caused the tightly coupled system that is our society, our civilization to unravel, like like I was saying before, maybe like a a massive solar flare or like a a meteor or possibly another Krakatoa where we were or Mount Tambora where the world is plunged into a what's essentially a volcanic winter. I mean, I could see things like that maybe incentivizing people to stop pursuing uh, technological progress. No, but you know, when I say, as soon as I say that, I'm like, no, not really, because we now that I, I believe someone did a te- uh, some government. I'm blanking on who did a test to see if they could deflect an asteroid. And they like intercepted it with like a probe and they could. So I feel like technology is the incentive that uh, is the incentive in, in and of itself to be to be used, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't think there's any way for people to reverse course on this unless they do what Ted did on an individual level, which is what he was recommending, to be fair. Like people should, you know, distance themselves from the urban sprawl and live off the land and so forth. But Nobody is going to do that in mass. I think in, you could probably see it in small communes, which of course Ted would hate because that's the only time communism actually bear, bears fruit is in communes <laughs> less than 200 people. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think like outside of that, I don't think there's any chance that things are going to uh, go the way Ted would like. Yeah. So that I guess that means that if you are a, a Ted purist and and you you are wanting to like you actually have to root for the acceleration of accelerationism because that's the only way it's going to happen the tightly tightly coupled systems collapsing and so and so um yeah because he he makes those he makes those i believe it's in the book where he talks about we've gotten to such a technological level that's based completely on big organizations that if there was like you said something like a massive solar flare that we wouldn't be able to replicate the technology we have now because it's so reliant on so many different inputs from so many different places from all over the world. And it's reliant on itself too. Like yeah. technology relies upon itself. I mean, and I, I, he kind of predicted that, like if I remember right, he was saying that eventually the technology will produce its own technology, that kind of thing. Yes. Which is yeah. what, we're, what we're kind of looking, at, looking into the abyss with that, with the advent, I shouldn't say advent, it's been around forever, but... The, uh, the, uh, the sort of new birth of AI, 
with chat GPT and so forth. Like I, it, I, I, I always think that people overstate the, da- the dangers of things like AI, but at the same time, it's also impossible to say it, it won't happen because we don't know, especially if it is, it, it becomes truly quote unquote sentient, which I don't know how we would measure that. But if it did, it's impossible to say what it would do. Uh, I can't, I can't imagine. And I'm sure Ted has done a lot of imagining <laughs> on what on what that would mean, and it's not because he's watched The Terminator or The Matrix or whatever. I'm sure he. I wonder what he thinks of those movies, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he. Well, he wouldn't have watched them, but he he may have. Right. He may know. Well, all yeah, them. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would just he would just be like sitting there, like because he was out of prison when Terminator Two came out. He's probably just sitting in the theater just arms folded, <laughs> shaking his head, just like, muttering about James Cameron. He stole like, my idea. Having, like, yeah. Activity. <laughs> yeah, he stole my idea. And he's and he's just doing a circuit activity and he's not even doing anything to solve the problem. He's just he's just distracting us. <laughs> and then he's asked to leave the theater. <laughs> And that's really why he went off the rails. <laughs> that's perfect. Um, do you have anything else you want to add in? Anything from your notes that you want to speak about? Well, there was something I referenced earlier that I never followed up on. And I, I don't know if anyone is even going to remember. But I, I did want to say the one thing that I was kind of like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, it was the one point where I was like, okay, he's not that smart. He's smart as hell, but he's not that smart. Is when he was talking about how medication can control behavior. Like, no, dude, that's not what SSRIs do. I'm on an SSRI. It doesn't control my behavior. I'm just not as, you know, like, I, I'm not as likely to go into a spiral thinking about the existential dread of, of, of life because I'm on this. It's a stabilizer. Like, just the idea that, like, we're going to be given medication that controls our behavior, which I, that's the Brave New World kind of You uh, did mention this, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And it's like, and again, that's also something I'd say about Huxley is like, you guys don't know anything about this medication. But he did say something really interesting, if I'm remembering correctly, that these medications a lot of the time are prescribed, but like nobody knows why they work the way they do. That is true. Okay. If he did say that, if I'm remembering that right. Like the interesting thing that my uh, therapist years ago said was that like we know how SSRIs and SNRIs and MAOIs and so forth, we know how they work, but we don't know why they work. Like th- we know that they work in this way, but we don't know why that makes people feel better which has always been a really funny thing to me, really chilling in a lot of ways. But the idea, though, that it's going to make you more docile, it's like, okay, maybe if everybody's on Xanax, sure, or everybody, everybody's on some kind of opioid, sure, maybe then they'll be more docile and, and so forth. And that's not to say that those aren't problematic drugs. I think they are, but they, uh, I, I think he overstates the, the risks of uh, – um, of a psychiatric medication. I, I think that he's right to be skeptical, as I'm sure he is, of big pharma. But I, I, I'm more concerned about things like AI and genetic engineering, for example, than I am about psychiatric medication. Well, when he's talking, well, there's a lot of movement. if you if I if I could like logically extrapolate what I think he would talk about, and it actually would sync up with something that I think Alex Jones said. <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> so every if everyone's taking ssris and they're taking medications these are inevitably going to be passed through the body into the ecosystem and turn the frogs gay so <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i suppose but <laughs> I, don't, I mean i it's another thing and i, I don't want to be too mean 
to Ted. But again, fuck him, he killed people, so I don't care. Uh, but there's a number of moments in the manifesto that I thought were really funny unintentionally on his part because it felt like he was revealing stuff about himself, yeah, yeah. <laughs> about his own insecurities. Like the one that stuck out to me was how he was really fixating on the loud noises of the city and how it disturbs quote yes. people. Yes. And I was like, you mean it disturbs you, Ted? Like you're 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 outing yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was such a specific thing talking about jackhammers and boom boxes and so forth. I was like, I think he's just talking about himself here. Well, that, I don't and, think and, he's talking about other people. Well, that and he makes this off reference to um, sexual partners, and like obviously he was right. he was almost a lifelong virgin. We haven't sorted that out completely, but and he and he, said, true, he yeah. said something like, "Well, you know." Most people would be happy just having a wife. Some people use sex as a surrogate activity, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. And like, I'm like, I'm sitting there and going, why is this even being talked about, Ted? This has nothing to do with technological society. Yeah. 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 Well, and also, and this is kind of an obvious thing. It kind of reminds me of uh, L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology fame in a way, but his hostility towards, um, psychologists yeah, yeah. and psychiatric <laughs> hospitals. I'm like, I feel like you're getting your out of yourself, Ted. What are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> like you're just, you're just giving everyone who won't take you seriously ammo. <laughs> and it's funny. And I, I say that like jokingly, but I'm also, I, I do feel kind of bad. Cause I'm like, look, I want to take, he's, he put a lot of thought into this. I want to take his ideas seriously, but he kind of lapses again. I, I joked earlier, he needed an editor, not just because of his, also as well error but things like that a good editor would be like ted you're you're getting distracted let's let's omit this <laughs> you know um so yeah what oh, one one uh, i got just literally a couple more things the first one i wanted to mention sure. has nothing to do with what we just mentioned but um i i hear this occasionally when i when i'm doing my you know interpersonal stuff in real life where you're talking to people about your ideas and this and that and you know, sometimes it gets to the point where somebody who will say to you, like me being a libertarian or a minarchist, right? They'll say to you something like, well, if you don't like all this stuff, just move out into the woods, right? Well, okay. <laughs> right? But okay. So I found this this story that I'm going to put up in the show notes. And it's from CBC and it's titled, YouTuber agrees to dismantle his backwoods Yukon cabin after court action. So what what happened is this guy, he went out into the like the, the actual wilderness out in the Yukon and he built himself a cabin at which point afterwards living in it shortly, the government came to his house and said, you can't live there. You can't build this thing. You need to go. So even if you wanted to go out and be on your own and do that, you can't. They will not leave you alone. Oh, yeah. No, dude, I I actually just finished cutting together a portion of my next episode where I was talking about this um, noxious aspect of progressive rhetoric, which is basically the, the implication or the outright statement that – uh, people who don't go along with the program will be left behind, quote okay. unquote. Yeah. And you can and and that can apply to anything, obviously. But I I noted, I was like, it's kind of funny though that the people who say that kind of thing are always the ones to not like they don't want to leave, they don't want to let you be left behind. Yeah, <laughs> because like it's it's like the, the and maybe this is just a feature of the state. I would suspect it probably is that they they can't let you alone. No, they can't, they can't let you just do your own thing because it it. I don't know what it is on a 
I'm sure there's like some kind of argument that can be made about it, but uh, that that's more profound than this. But I, I think it's just sort of like an insecurity in a way, because it's like if you live off the grid, it's essentially proving the state wrong yeah. in, a, in a way. And I, and I don't know if it's even thought about at that level by state officials. It's but that seems to be sort of the core issue the state will usually have with people. <laughs> I shouldn't say people like Ted because I think the issue was that he was killing people and sending bombs everywhere, but <laughs> people like the guy in the Yukon, I should say. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's that. And there's got to be a little bit of like petty jealousy involved with people that are around there that know what's going on. And like maybe uh, this kind of thing like, well, if you can't, if I can't leave, then you can't leave either. So I'm going to call the government and tell mm-hmm. them about your Ill- illegal building. Right. Yeah. Because I'm assuming he built it without permits or whatever. Right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That. Yeah. I mean, jealousy seems it seems weird to say, but I can't think of any other explanation for that kind of uh, that that, that kind of behavior to like out somebody who's literally doing nothing. Like if I, I guess like if he was like going on other people's land and or like hunting animals on their land or or stealing their crops or something, I would be like, okay, well, that's different. But it sounds like he was just living by himself away from everybody. Yeah. And that was the issue. Yeah. It's just it's absurd. It's absurd. I I mean, yeah, and I and I can see why someone like Ted would be outraged by that. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess uh I have one final question for you. Uh, sure. Has this entire podcast we've been doing a surrogate activity? Um, yeah, I mean, by Ted's definition, everything we do is a surrogate activity, which again, is another reason why I'm kind of like roll my eyes at that. But yeah, it is a surrogate activity. It's a surrogate activity to talk about Ted's ideas, but we're not actually going to implement any of them, uh, like, or any of his uh, suggestions in practice, largely because that would be insane, (laughs) I think is the, uh, is the big part of it. Uh, and we're contributing to the technological, you know, state of the world that he so despises. Um, and in a way, this is really petty, but because he's killed people and because he has tried to kill many more, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm happy that we're making the world a worse place in his eyes. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a perfect way to end it. Thank you again for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. No problem, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was uh, really fun to listen to his manifesto and talk about it and I guess also make fun of him <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> If you like weird, spooky, and strange history, then I have the podcast for you. My name is Brenda, and I'm the host of Horrifying History. Side of history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. The tales of haunted places, 
infamous true crimes, the paranormal and unsolved mysteries, and then we look to history to see where the truth actually lies. Want to get spooky with us? Get your horrifying history fix by subscribing today on your favorite podcast provider or by going to our website at horrifyinghistory.podbean.com. Hi, I'm Ashley, a true crime fanatic. I'm Dan, and I don't know anything about true crime. Together, we host Fuck That, a true crime podcast that covers cases that highlight important topics that are often overlooked, such as wrongful convictions, domestic violence, and social inequity, with the occasional case with spooky themes. If you are looking for your next true crime fix delivered candidly with a hint of sarcasm, you can listen and subscribe to bi-weekly episodes of Fuck That wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter at FThatPod and at FThat underscore pod on Instagram. Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side.